Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. Since we're getting back into the book of Ephesians, I thought we would do a little bit of review and some observation in just a general sense that might be helpful to you today. You know, as Christians, we believe that the scriptures are words that are penned by men, but they are also inspired by God. And because of that, we believe as Christians that these these words transcend, or maybe another word for that, are not bound by, these words that we see on our page are not bound by a particular culture. And certainly the scriptures were written in a particular culture, but they are not bound or, or shaped or prejudiced by that particular culture. They're written by people who came out of different ethnic and racial backgrounds. But as Christians, we believe that the scriptures are not bound by those racial or ethnic biases that those men brought as they were overshadowed in those ways by the Holy Spirit of God. We don't think because Paul wrote Ephesians 5 that Paul just came off of this by the top of his head and he put his own personal bias there. Nor do we feel like that these Scriptures are bound by any time. The Scriptures are for all time and for all people, and they're to bring life and breath and insight and wisdom into all the human endeavors that you and I will encounter, even though they were written two, three, even in some places, 4,000 or more years ago. You know, most often, I think, you probably, like me, have sensed God's authorship of this book because someone has delivered a powerful message Or maybe you were in a seminar and there was great teaching and in the moments of that teaching and the life circumstance that you were in, you felt like God was using this spokesman to speak directly to you. Or maybe it was in the quietness of your own home or out somewhere and you were reading these words and the message that came off the page, you knew God was speaking to you. I think that's oftentimes how we feel these divine roots that are connected to these words. But sometimes there are more subtle ways that I think you can observe the supernatural authenticity of this book. And I'd like to share one with you this morning that struck me as I was preparing to get back into the book of Ephesians. And that's just simply the way this particular book is formatted. Uh, This book of Ephesians. And you might say formatted. That's somewhat of a computer term. But how it's laid out and why God used Paul to put certain things where he did. Now, if you've been in this series all along with us, uh, you know that the book breaks down pretty neatly, doesn't it? We have the first three chapters, and they deal with these great lofty theological truths, some of which you and I may have experienced, but I think there are a number of them that we just simply have to take by faith. I mean, the fact is that God says that we're going to spend eternity with Him if we're in Christ. Now, I can know that with my head. Sometimes I can experience that, but oftentimes the reasons for that and how he's doing all that and the fact we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, thoughts like that, they're almost too lofty to truly feel. I just have to accept them by faith. Well, that's what these first three chapters deal with. Now, we've been in chapters 4, 5, and 6, and as we've told you, uh, those chapters deal with practical applications, taking some of those truths and bringing them down to where they should be, and that is operational in your and my life, and we should feel the impact and the power of those particular truths. And so, as I've looked back through chapters 4, 5, and 6, I've just kind of marveled at the way the Spirit of God used Paul to set forth these practicals. 
And I don't think any of it is by accident. Let me just give you uh, some of what I mean. Look over in chapter 4. You'll look at verse 25, and it talks about the practical issue of speaking truth. And it gives one verse in this whole book to speaking truth to one another. And it makes a few statements in that regard. Then in uh, verse 26, the very next verse, it gives one verse on practical issues about anger. It chooses truth. It chooses anger. It chooses a host of, of other practicals. It also leaves out a lot of things that you're wondering why he didn't put those in. But he chooses those things. Then if you look over in chapter 6 at verse 4, he talks one verse in this whole book about parenting. And uh, ladies, uh, at this point he leaves you out and he addresses just fathers in instructing and disciplining children. So one verse on those subjects. And you say, why did he just give one verse on those things? Well, I'll tell you here in just a moment. But I also want you to know what he spent most of his time speaking about. In chapter 5, there are these two huge sections that he labors on. The first that we covered last time I spoke is in chapter 5, especially in verses 3 through 14. He speaks on the issue of human sexuality and some of the struggles and improprieties that we all deal with, married or unmarried. Then next week, we'll be talking about another 12 verses that are given solely to the instruction of husband-wife relationships and the st structure and roles of a marriage. Now, why do I say all that? I think, perhaps for me, the reason that impacted me is because as I was thinking about my tenure as a pastor for 20 years, and I was thinking about the issues I face, I couldn't help but marvel and how those statements and the length of time given to each one of them correspond directly in many regards to the amount of time I spend dealing with issues in the church. For instance, I don't spend a lot of time with people talking to them or even convincing them that they need to speak the truth. They may not, but whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, it's a value that's held up in our society. We need to be reminded of it every once in a while, and Paul does very briefly. As we think about parenting in the 90s and the issues of parenting in the 90s, I very rarely spend any time pleading with moms to spend time with their kids. But I spend a great deal of time trying to exhort, sometimes convict, sometimes help fathers to get involved in their home and to spend time with their children and to assume a responsibility that men from day one have wanted to run from and who feel not confident in, and that is building the character of their sons and daughters by instructing them in the Word of God. See, this is relevant stuff, isn't it? He's right on target. He knows exactly what he's talking about, and the Spirit of God has formatted it just the way he wanted through through this Jewish apostle. But then I look at the formatting and I say, you know, what are the two biggest issues that I spend the most time on from the day I entered the ministry until today. And those issues are human sexuality and marriage. The structure, the development of a healthy home. And sure enough, as God would have it, He spends this great amount of time formatting it just that way. Giving most attention to the things that are most dealt with, and I'm sure were dealt with 2,000 years even before Paul. 
Now, there's one other insight, because again, the scriptures transcend people, transcend race, transcend time. We're all today trying to bunch up in little groups. We're more racially prejudiced than we've ever been. But the scripture is something that says it's for everyone, for all time, to build into your life health and success and the pleasing of God in human endeavors. But he mentions one other thing, too, and I think this is probably the greatest point of wisdom, is notice what the section is between these two major sections in Ephesians 5. We've got human sexuality on the left, we've got marriage on the right, and their position perfectly in the middle is the practical issue of how to walk with God, spirituality. I want you to know that's not by accident. As intimate as human sexuality is, and what people want out of it, and the dynamic and the power and the beauty of it, the reality is it will never reach that potential. It'll never be positioned where it should be apart from it being joined as this passage formats it to spirituality. As much as we want a good marriage and all the options that are out there as to how to structure a marriage and everybody telling you they've got the answer, the reality is, is you'll never be able to have the intimacy of a marriage that you want and the health and the stability and the success unless, unless it is fused with spirituality. And so what you see in this passage, Ephesians 5, are really probably some of the greatest issues that you'll ever face. The issue of sex, the issue of spirituality, and the issue of spouse relationships. Three pearls that are meant to be uh, uh, powerful in your life, but they'll never be powerful unless you're able to thread them together and pull them together like a necklace. In fact, I would even go further than that, not just pulling them together like a necklace, but like atoms fusing them together so that they will then generate the kind of power that God meant for them to generate in each area. So I want you to know as Paul penned these words, and we're not sure exactly where he penned them or at what time, but as he wrote, he wrote under the shadow of the Spirit of God who knows you. He knows you. He knows what you need. He knows what's going to bring life to your relationships of intimacy. But you've got to format your life the way the Bible formats itself in order to be successful. So this is not a random layout. I want you to know, even in the observation of how it's laid out, I want you to see the insight and the wisdom that's there. We're going to discuss this morning the second pearl of great price, and that is how a person walks with God. Spirituality. And for some of you, it might be going over old ground. For some of you, this might be real new. But I think we all kind of uh, maybe struggle sometimes with what is the definition of spirituality. I know there's certain terms that you hear over and over in our world today, and you kind of assume that you know what they mean, but if somebody asks you directly, you get all kinds of different answers from people rather than a uniform answer. I, I, I laughed a number of uh, weeks ago. There was an article in the Gazette, and uh, it was entitled, What is a Redneck? Now, you know, we all have kind of our definition, but, and, we're, and we're a state that's supposed to be, quote, filled with rednecks, but what is a redneck? And the Gazette gave, I thought, some pretty good possibilities. It said, you might be a redneck if you consider a bug zapper to be quality entertainment. 
Or you might be a redneck if you have ever spray-painted your girlfriend's name on an overpass. You might be a redneck if you have a trash bag for a window on the passenger side of the car. Or you might be a redneck if your wife has a beer belly and you find it attractive. <laughs> I've got a sick imagination. You might be a redneck if your truck has curtains, but your home doesn't. You might be a redneck if your front porch collapses and it kills three or more dogs. Uh, you might be a redneck if your father encourages you to quit school because there's an opening at the filling station. And you might be a redneck if your dog can't watch you eat without gagging. Well, you can add some to those, but, but those are some possibilities. <laughs> What's spirituality? Really, if I were to ask you, what would you say spirituality is? And you know what? I think we would have sometimes some funny answers about what it really is. Because some of us have got it all tied down real tightly, and we think we, we know it, but we're going to find out as we move through this particular passage because I think it answers what it means to be spiritual, practically speaking. And I, let me tell you how it's going to break down. The first two verses, 15 and 16, are going to give us some characteristics of a spiritual person. And then when you get to 17 and 18, it's going to tell us uh, really what the key ingredients are to a spiritual person. And then 19, 20, and 21 will kind of unfold just some kind of spontaneous characteristics of a spiritual person. Well, let's go back and look at just what are those things that are kind of manifestations of a, of a spiritual life. It says in verse 15, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Now let me just make a simple statement. To be spiritual is to be careful. This word is used in Acts 18.25 when it's speaking of, of um, the great orator Apollos. He was one of the early church teachers and in chapter 18 he's coming into one of the cities teaching and preaching and it makes a statement about him. It says that he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. Accurately. Accurately is the same word as careful. To be careful as a Christian is to be accurate as a Christian. Well, what does that mean? Well, let me give you an illustration. Uh, I told you we were on vacation and we were traveling uh, as we were coming home from Snowmass to Leadville, Colorado. A little highway called 82. It goes over Independence Pass. I don't know if you've ever been over Independence Pass, but I always stop and drink a lot of coffee before I go because I know it's going to be high up in the mountains. The roads are going to be extremely narrow, kind of etched and carved out of these soaring mountains and it's going to feel, whether it is or not, it's going to feel dangerous. And you begin to climb up those mountains and get higher and higher and higher, and the, the drop-offs become longer and longer and longer. And the thing you're hoping for the whole way over that pass is that you will not meet, coming from the opposite direction, one of those wide-body campers. <laughs> and sure enough, we did. And uh, as, you, as you begin to approach that camper, your instincts tell you to pull off a little on the shoulder. The problem is, is there is no shoulder up there. There's only death over on that far right-hand side. And so you have to kind of fight against yourself because that's not your natural instinct. And so what you have to do is you have to kind of trust the authorities at that moment 
and hug that yellow line and pray like crazy that they know what they have done and that when you meet, they'll be able to get by and you'll be able to get by. And so that's exactly what we did, and it worked. You know, we made it. We, we moved by it, and, and we were kind of safe. But the whole time you're feeling the, the tension of that. The reason I say that is because if the Scripture is right, as I read it, as I look at it cover to cover and go through it, the Scripture says that life is dangerous. Now, you may not be aware of that because you may not have taken the careful time and attention to be accurate about life. You may have just picked up the images of life. You may have gone through and you see what they say on TV and you feel safe in your neighborhood and things are going okay for you. And so the result of that is you think, hey, I can handle it. My instincts tell me I'm safe. It tells you we're not driving over Independence Pass. We're driving through Kansas. And if you're driving through Kansas and you meet an 18-wheeler, you can pull off on the shoulder for 20, 30 miles. You can just keep pulling off. You can just keep going through cornfields after cornfields, and, and you're okay. But the Scripture says you're not safe. It says it's not that easy, and you can't trust those natural instincts that if you're going to be a spiritual Christian, you've got to be careful how you walk. You've got to be accurate about how you walk. You've got to be seeking to see life as it really is and, and, and what God says it is and not how you have imagined it to be or you've accepted it through media images to be or how even you want to pretend for it to be. You've got to be accurate about life. You know, I've observed in myself first, I must confess, and in a number of people over the years, that every one of us are subject to a major blind spot. And we spend a lot of energy trying to convince ourselves that we don't have that problem that that blind spot is blocking. Our spouse might try to tell us. Our friends might try to tell us. There may come uncomfortable situations that keep coming up over and over that are the result of us not being able to deal carefully with our life in a particular area but it just keeps coming up. That's what the spiritual Christian seeks to avoid. He starts out with his life saying, I'm driving through Independence Pass. It'll always be that way. There's danger always to trust natural instincts. So I've got to be inviting. I've got to be encouraging not only God, but everyone else to help me see my life as it really is. You know, I love the prayer that David prayed in Psalm 139. He said, search me, O God. Try me. See if there be any hurtful way in me. You know what he's praying for? Accuracy. Accuracy. So he might not spend hours and broken relationships and fights trying to fend off reality, but he might be able to see himself and his world as it really is. The spiritual man invites, encourages others to help him see life as it really is. Do you have a friend like that? Is there someone that could come to you and talk to you and say, you know, you're just not really doing it here. You, you talk about living the Christian life. I, I don't see it in this area. Without you jumping back and putting up defenses and 
hurling nuclear missiles and saying, I'm in Kansas. See, that's what we're talking about here. The spiritual Christian is forever careful about life. And when circumstances come up, when it's God's word versus his natural instincts, he fights like crazy to hug the line because he knows there is no shoulder, only heartache. Second thing is in verse 16. It says that the spiritual person, or to be spiritual, means to walk, well, opportunistically. Listen to what it says. Making the most of your time because the days are evil. I don't think I have to convince anybody that the days are evil in our world. We feel kind of threatened in our world today. But this verse says something different. It, it, it kind of offers to us that just because the days are evil, we shouldn't withdraw. Now, our natural instinct in a threatened world, when you don't feel like you can walk in your neighborhood or go downtown, is to buy a house in a neighborhood that's got a wall and an electric fence around it and don't go out except with your friends in certain locations and don't mix it up with anybody. Just control my life. That's exactly opposite of what this verse says. See, what this verse says, make the most of the time because the days are evil. In a sense, what he's saying is evil days have created some opportunities. In fact, making the most is just one word in Greek. And that word was used in the marketplace of a person who would go into that marketplace to buy up the bargains that were there. Kind of get the feeling of what I'm saying? He's saying here that in evil days, bargains, spiritual bargains are created and the spiritual person will be able to see it and rather than withdraw in those evil days and retreat and wring their hands and tell how bad it is, they will actually go forward and seize those opportunities. You know, family life is unraveling today all over our country and everyone's saying it. But you see, when family life unravels, what a great opportunity to live healthy with your family and use that as an opportunity to invite others to find out why. Everyone knows that integrity might be lacking everywhere, but that doesn't mean that people aren't passionate still to see someone with integrity. And so when the pressure is on in the workplace, the spiritual man, rather than saying everybody's doing it, I mean, I can't fight against this, the spiritual man sees, or the spiritual woman sees, this is an opportunity to stand on my integrity and buy up the bargains because it's going to amaze people that people still live like that. Our whole culture today is worried about violence. What a great opportunity to demonstrate peace among people. Everybody's retreating into their racial subgroup. What a great time to reach out to races and love them. Everybody's concerned about greed and says it's exhausted our society in the 80s. But even the greedy people who are still in the 90s are saying, is there anything else? This isn't doing it. What a great opportunity to find that bargain and demonstrate a different way of life. See, that's what the spiritual person, we're just given the characteristics of a, of a spiritual man or woman. They, they, they see how these are opening doors because our world's out there going, you know, give me some answers. People don't have their shields up as much anymore. I can find it everywhere. Their shields are down. Just show me reality. Spiritual person seizes that. Not long ago, there was a, I got invited to a Bible study 
of not anyone that's in our church, but it's led by some guys from our church, and they took it over from someone else who sees the opportunity of being around people in the marketplace, and though they were successful, many of them and stuff, they had tried to make things in their life, and it just hadn't worked. And they were expressing that. And rather than draw back, this guy seized these guys together and pulled off a Bible study, and they invited me into it one morning, and I was just sitting there listening to these guys. It was incredible. The energy, as they were saying, yeah, it just didn't work out there. Making money just didn't work. It didn't satisfy my life. I almost lost my marriage. I want to know Jesus Christ. I mean, the enthusiasm of that meeting was off the charts. But you see, that wouldn't have happened. That that little nucleus of guys wouldn't have been brought together without a man in our church who didn't feel adequate, as he told me, stepping in and said, okay, I'll, I'll lead you. See, that's what spiritual people do. You know, I hope that in the years to come, especially as we point to common cause and all those kind of things, that I can help you see over and over. My passion for these next few years is to get you to take a look at your life, take a look at this world, find a bargain, and make a difference. Not come to church. That's the goal. And that's what spiritual people do. Now, he gives these ingredients. He says, you know, a spiritual man or woman's careful. They're accurate about their life and about the world. Uh, they make the most. They buy up the time. They seize every minute of it. But now here's how they got to that position in the next two verses. Here's why they became that way. Notice it says in verse 17, So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. I want you to underline a couple of words. Verse 17, you might just underline, so then. See, he's telling you, if you want to be careful, if you want to be a bargain shopper, so do this. You see that? See the word so, and then do, do this. Then in verse 18, you got the word and. Anytime I see an and, I put a plus sign. Do this and plus do this. So he tells you to do two things. When I was a young boy, and it was uh, probably 1955 or so, and my mom came home one day and she said, we're all going to go over to this community center in Ruston and you're going to get your vaccination, your polio shot. Except this time it's going to be different. And the good news was is that you didn't have to have a shot anymore. They were going to give you these sugar cubes. Some of you remember when you lined up and they gave you this little paper cup and there was this little sugar cube and it was kind of fun. But I remember during those days, those images of those poster children who had polio. And those twisted, crooked legs and those big, huge braces so they could, they could walk. And that was the encouragement, and it was encouragement enough, believe me, to take that booster shot or to take that sugar cube or whatever. I want to make an announcement here today. And that's this. Everybody in this room was born with spiritual polio. There's no vaccine for your children or for yourself. You were born with spiritual polio. You were born in this world crippled. Now, I know some of us would like to go back and say, well, the reason I'm dysfunctional in this area and this area is because I didn't have a dad or didn't have a mom or wasn't raised right or bad environment. Or we didn't have enough money, etc., etc. I ran with the wrong crowd. Well, certainly those encourage dysfunction. But can I tell you something? You were born dysfunctional. It's your nature to be dysfunctional. If I read accurately this book, crippled in life. 
And so how are you going to walk? Because he's talking about walking carefully and you're over there with twisted legs in your spirit not even sure you can get up. The Scripture says, hey, there's some braces available. And that's what I want you to know. Your legs aren't going to be straightened out in this life. But you can walk. In fact, you can walk well. But you've got to wear these braces. And here's what I want you to know. You can't just put one on and expect to walk. Have you seen somebody totally crippled with just one brace walking well? No. Got to have both braces. Notice in verse 17, the first brace is stated somewhat cryptically. It says, understand what the will of the Lord is. Well, I don't know where to go to understand the will of the Lord in a more primary source than the Word. The Word is the left brace for your leg. To put on the Word. Now, for some of you, that's not easy. You don't, you're not familiar with the Word. It's not comfortable to you. Or maybe you don't have the discipline for it. But here's what I want to tell you. You've got to have it if you're going to walk. So you've got to make a decision at some point if you want to have these characteristics I've just listed. Um, Christmas, I uh, gave my kids a ping pong table. And uh, I remember it came Christmas week and it was in this gigantic box which strikes fear in every dad's heart. Because when you know when you open that box, it's unassembled, Right? So we didn't open it till April. And uh, <laughs> I finally had to break down and open it. But when we did, sure enough, it had a thousand different parts and they spilled out all over everywhere. And a man's nature, at least most men I know, is you just want to kind of tackle that thing and get it done and get out of the garage. And you want to start screwing screws in. You think you can figure it out. And I've gone that route before. Never works. I get frustrated. I don't walk in the Spirit. In fact, I'm worse than the flesh. I become a devil. And I've just learned after a number of years that you've got to sit down and pull out this thing that a Harvard graduate who's an engineer put together at probably the NASA Institute. And it's got all these figures and bolts and things like that listed on there. And you've got to put this thing together. And I always want to skip, but I finally learned I've got to go step by step. And it, you know, it takes days for me to get through that thing. And I've got, you know, I've got to get, find the number four hex bolt and the certain washer and the wood screw and those kind of things. And I'm trying to follow all this, but I've learned I've got to go step by step and hug the line or I won't get the promised results. Have you found that to be true? And then I go out and I tried to build a marriage without reading the instruction manual. Is that not ignorance? Is that not like it says? Foolish? Or I try to conduct my business and never consult one of the wisest men that ever lived back here in Proverbs. I can read his statements that will tell me, guarantee me, assure me, and empower me to be successful. But you see, I don't want to go back there because I don't know where Proverbs is sometimes. I can't find it in my Bible. It's hard to read. There's some statements there that don't make sense to me. You know, it's like a number four hex bolt. But I want you to know something that I found out when I was building this ping pong table. About Thursday, after about four days of working on it, I started feeling pretty good about myself. Because when they said a number four hex bolt, I'd screwed it in a hundred times. I knew exactly where to go. I was starting to get comfortable. It made sense to me. And the project was encouraging to me. That's exactly the invitation I'm offering some of you today. To put on the brace won't seem easy at the beginning. You'll feel uncomfortable. You'll feel awkward. It won't make sense to you. 
But there will come a day if you stick with it. When I say Ephesians, not only will you turn to Ephesians, you'll have it all marked up. You'll have the verses memorized. They'll come back to you in the critical moments of life. You'll feel like a theologian. But it's got to be a discipline if you believe that this is the instruction manual. But to go out and build a business or spend money or try to organize what I give to what without ever consulting this, that's just secularism. That's trying to walk as a cripple. And I want you to know it won't work. Some of you maybe saw 2020 with Martina Navratilova, the great tennis player, talking about her bisexuality the other night. And I sat there and just, I just felt heartbreak for her because she wants so desperately to be intimate with another person. She wants a lifelong partner. But she came from an atheistic nation with no spirituality. And she's tried to construct her life after following those tennis strokes to the letter, discipline, by the masters in the rule book. And then she goes out and she tries to build a life on guesswork. And there's nothing but heartache in her life, financial ruin, perversion. And I, I just wanted to embrace her and say, Come back. That's what we're talking about here. You've got to have that brace to have a life. But then, if you just wear that brace, I want you to turn over to 2 Corinthians 3 for a moment. If you just have that brace, that's not enough. People who try to live just by the Bible, they become mechanical, cold Christians. And what they do is they feel all this responsibility and they keep trying to make it work and make it work and make it work and... Finally, just something snaps. And they go, I can't make it work. Well, you know what? You can't. The letter kills. Wear this one brace and you'll die. You'll wear out under the responsibility. I want you to notice what it says in 2 Corinthians 3. Look at verse 4. It says, And such confidence we have through Christ towards God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. But our adequacy is from God who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Now get this, not of the letter. Now that, does that mean the letter is not important? No, it's very important. But not just of the letter. That's what I want to write in there. Not just of the letter. But what? What does it say? Of the Spirit. Because why? The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Well, now turn back to Ephesians 5. It says... And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That's brace number two. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the one that in 325 A.D. they put in the Nicene Creed that says, I believe, that everybody used to recite in churches 1,600 years ago, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the author and giver of life. Now, Fellowship Bible Church errs anywhere. <laughs> We're in being strong with one brace and we got one wire running down the other leg. Because some of you have never felt in any powerful way on any kind of ongoing basis some sense of being embraced and loved and encouraged by the Spirit of God. You're sitting in the garage to build a, 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 a big ping pong table of your life by yourself. Now you might can do it, but it's hard. It's so much better to have your neighbor come over and walk in there and you drink some coffee and you build and he shows you a few things because he's done it before and you do it together and when you finish you shake hands and you embrace. Good job. Had a great time. See you later. 
That's how I see the Spirit of God. Coming alongside saying, yeah, here's the rules. And there's a lot of them. But here's what I want you to understand. The things the Bible says for you to do will break you. That's why I think there's this comparison between wine and the Spirit. <laughs> Listen to what Ray Stedman says. Great statement. He says, this verse recognizes that there are things in life that will drive us to drink. <laughs> and here's what I want you to hear as a Christian. This will drive you to drink if you try to do it by yourself. It will. And, and quite frankly, we need to drink. We need a support system other than just ourselves grinding it out. So what's the support system? Well, he gives two options. There's wine or alcohol in those days or there's drinking of the Spirit. Remember when Jesus met the woman? He says, but I'll give you water you know not of that you can drink and out of your being will flow life. The Spirit gives life. It takes the rules brings them together with the person and it becomes something that's exciting. It's an adventure. It's joyous rather than a grind of failure and pressures. And let me tell you, this life has more pressures and responsibilities than anybody can handle. I remember when I was growing up, I, uh, I spent a lot of time over a good friend's house whose dad was an, a doctor. In fact, he was our family doctor. We would visit a lot and and uh, when I was at his clinic, he was very warm and engaging, and he was a good MD. But I remember as I got to know their family and became part of their family, really, over the years, I remember him coming home at the end of the day, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock. We'd be out shooting baskets. He'd walk in. He'd say hi to us. It was kind of slump-shouldered, and it was hi. And he'd walk in, and he would go to the cabinet, and open it up, get out of scotch and water, and go sit in this chair, turn on the TV, and he'd drink his scotch and water. That was when I was 14. By the time I was 17, he would drink that scotch and water, and he'd go back and he'd get another and another. And the evening would become longer and longer and longer, and then he'd click out the light. Start the day over again as a responsible doctor, come home and dissipate. You see that? Do not get drunk with wine, for that is what? Dissipation. What's dissipation? Well, think about it. When something dissipates, what does it do? Disappears, doesn't it? separates. What I watched over 30 years was a fine MD's humanity disappeared. His humanity, he was still a good doctor, but his humanity, rather than being energized and developed and refined, disappeared. Because the problems, responsibilities, pressures, they were too great. And he looked for a support system that didn't work. Are you like that? Has Christianity just something where you kind of attend to kind of get a, a little bit of pump job? I mean, basically, Fellowship Bible Church is Hans and Franz. We're here to pump you up. <laughs> so you get pumped, you go out and die Monday. Die Tuesday, Wednesday. Come in discouraged and we pump you up again. That's because you don't have a friend, an intimate friend. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? Well, let me, I've said a lot of this before, but I want to say one additional thing about walking in the Spirit just to help you understand this. Walking in the Spirit, as I understand it, as I've experienced it, is simply the desire to do God's will 
knowing I can't do it and putting myself out on the ledge to try. It's not inviting God to come in and take care of me as I try to assemble the erector set. It's just the opposite. It's me pursuing His kingdom, knowing that the pressures and the responsibility and things He's asking, I'm not sure I can do, getting out on the limb and sawing it off and trusting He's going to bring success to it. If you do that, and you've never, if you'll try that, if you've never felt the presence of the Spirit, if you'll try that, I will promise you He will come to your rescue. Because where the will of God is, and faith, and a person taking the leap, the Spirit is there. reason some people haven't experienced the Spirit is because they're not after the will of God. reason sometimes, the, if the, well, quite frankly, somebody said if the Spirit pulled out of planet Earth, some churches would just keep going on. Not even though He's gone. Because they got their plans, their goals, their responsibilities. See, here it talks about being either out of control, dissipation. The word is used other places in the New Testament for riot, out of control, or being under control. I would say at our church, if I were taking a look and evaluating us, we're not out of control, but I'm sometimes not sure we're under control. We suffer from another plague. <laughs> we're in control. See, we got, our, we got our plans, we got our goals, we got our directions. We got everything except examining the book and saying, what's your will? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to become character-wise? Let me step out there and try, even though I don't know if I can do it. And that's why we've got a little small rod down here, not a complete brace. That's why when you talk about the Spirit, something for some of you, that's kind of, well, I, I can recite it in a creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Have you felt Him? Has He ministered to you? Has He touched your life? Has He challenged your convictions? Has He helped you see things the way it is? If you've got your life so in control, that's, there's no faith there. Faith means you've got to take a risk. There's no walking in the Spirit without that. When I was in... Seminary, I remember, you know, there were times where we were just studying the Word, studying the Word. That got so dry. And I got into a good church, and guys were challenging us to walk in the Spirit. And I was in graduate school on the other side of the Willamette River working on a master's in counseling psychology with all these freakos. And, uh, you know, everybody was from all, all kinds of different things, and we were, it was just kind of wild, and I was scared to death to tell them that I was a Christian. And so when we were in this church, I kind of challenged myself as I looked at the will of God because it says witness. And I said, okay, I'm going to be a witness. Give me an opportunity. But what I had in mind was some person in my counseling class would pour out their life to me one day over a cup of coffee and I could witness. So uh, several weeks later, I had this counseling class. It was the start of a new semester and the professor came in, put us all in a big circle, looked to the girl to my right and said, we're going to start with you and go around the circle and finish with Robert and we want to ask you a question. You tell us from the gut what is the most important thing in your life. <laughs> so for two hours, I felt the presence of the Spirit as it moved from person to person coming to me. <laughs> and what was I going to say? Say, what was I going to say? And I just felt that saw going, shh, 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 shh. <laughs> And the Spirit's saying, you can do it. You can. 
Some of you think of me as this big, bold person. I'm not. I was scared to death. And I thought, what are they going to think of me? I mean, they already didn't like me because I was from the South. Now I'm going to be a Southern <laughs> conservative. But when it came time, you know what I did? <laughs> I just leaped. I said, hey, the most important thing, I never forget, I said, just the way I should have. Most important thing in my life is Jesus Christ. You can't get much blunter than that. And then I went in, you know, for a while, and I tell you, the incredible witness that came from that moment. And I walked away. Was I heavy with rule? I was free. My humanity had been reborn in a fuller sense than before. Do you know that? But see, now today, I feel those same things. Hey, you'll sit down sometimes. I'll be in my study with my checkbook writing out bills, and it'll come to give something to the church. I know what I'm supposed to give. But I'm challenged every time by my flesh saying, if you give that, you won't be able to buy this. How will you pay that medical bill? And every time, it's sitting there, and then I have to make the decision. That's all of life. And yet I've made that decision time and time again throughout my life, and God's Spirit has been there affirming me. And then the power of the Spirit's release, He's met needs of mine in ways, but I don't think they would have even started to be met by God in that special way apart from my faithfulness. Is that true of you? See, these are the ingredients of a spiritual life. Strap on the Word. It's going to be tough sometimes. Strap on the Spirit. Saw off the limb. Jump. And see if God's presence is in your life. Now in verses 19 through 21, he just mentions real briefly kind of some spontaneous responses that come out of a spiritual man or woman when, they, when they're walking this way. It's somewhat cryptic in the way it says it. It says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. What's he talking about there? Well, I've listed on your outline. I think he's talking about worship. Worship. It's where you come in, and rather than being a spectator looking through a plexiglass window, because of what's gone on in your life, in the Spirit and in the Word, you come here, and when we begin to sing, you want to sing. Now, I'm not pressuring anybody to sing artificially. But I just know over the years, watching my own life, when I sit there, even this little chorus this morning, when you start going, yes, Lord, yes, see, if that's been replayed in reality, in real life, in your experience, you want to sing that song. See, when I was singing that, I was thinking, writing out that check, in that critical moment, standing on that limb, and going, yes, Lord, yes, and feeling the sense of satisfaction in that, then when I come in, nobody has to ask me, now let's sing this song now. See, we start singing, yes, Lord, yes, and I'm replaying reality for me. That's why when you've got a, a congregation filled with spirit-filled people who are spiritual, nobody has to ask them to sing. They take the roof off. Al and I, a number of years ago, went back to our church, this church that I came from in Oregon. It's a small church. There are about 80 people there. And they had me speak one night, and Alan got up, and he wasn't sure if it was going to sound very good in this little building with just 80 people. And let me tell you, they took the roof off this place. Because it was people who were singing, you know, a mighty fortress is our God. That wasn't a theoretical abstract on a screen. That was a reality flowing out of their spirit. That's why you can sing. 
Then look at verse 20. It says, always giving thanks for all things. We're talking about perspective here. There's just a natural difference in perspective. When you're in the Spirit, you see things differently. Even the things that don't go right. You don't walk around saying, life isn't fair. It hadn't treated me good today. Didn't do this. I deserve this. I deserve that. You've got a whole different perspective, even on things that are tragedies. I remember years ago when I was playing college football after I broke my neck and had to quit. I look back on that from a spiritual perspective, in the Spirit, knowing what it took to get this guy corralled by Jesus Christ, and it took breaking his neck. It did. He had to go that far. So when I look at that, I don't think of that as a negative. I think of that as a blessed positive of which I'm thankful, even to tears. Can you say that about your life? And lastly, he says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Boy, this is a great one. People in the Spirit live to make other people win. People not in the Spirit live to win over other people. What incredible harmony God has wrought in this church because they're a win-win relationship. People marvel at it. it that doesn't mean it's going to last tomorrow. <laughs> but it has come to that point as of today. You can give up. Marriages can go to win-win rather than win-lose when you're spiritual. But you cannot be spiritual without strapping on the Word and strapping on the Spirit and pulling yourself up and walking. And it may feel a little awkward, but not for long. And what a difference in lifestyle. How's your walk? How did you measure up this morning? Let me invite you as we close in prayer to bring the Spirit and the Word into your lifestyle. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.